you know, there's no civilian job that's clearing houses and blowing stuff up and setting charges and how well you can shoot, you know, but it's that ability to adapt to everything. In this brand new episode, we are joined by our friend John Edwards, a former army veteran who served overseas on multiple deployments throughout Iraq. We get into his college life as a veteran who helped develop the Student Veteran Association at App State. John now serves with the Orlando Police Department and shares some of his personal experiences as a cop. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. John, what's going on, man? How are you tonight? I'm good. How about y'all? Doing good, man. Thanks for joining us on uh, tonight's podcast. I want to, obviously, we have uh, quite a bit to get into tonight and sharing uh, a very interesting story of yours, but I want to start off by talking about what your personal enlistment story is and why you originally decided to join the U.S. Army. Yeah, man. So, uh, starting out as a kid, played army for a long time. Like don't remember getting into it or what, but just watching every military movie, army movie, Marine comedy, serious, whatever it was, mm-hmm. um, interstate around all the way through high school, uh, graduated in May of 2001. I wanted to join right then, but I was old enough to do it myself. Told my mom that I would try out college for a year just to you know, see what that was like. Uh, my dad kind of wanted me to take the ROTC route going as an officer. Um, so I did that. I was in college for about two weeks and then September 11th happened. So just completely lost focus on school. Um, that's all I could think about was joining as soon as possible after that. So oh, wow. start talking to recruiters, went to uh, the, the MEPS a couple of times. So I got the contract that I wanted wound up signing a contract in January and then leaving for a uh, basic training September of 02. That's wow. crazy. So basically you just decided to leave college and join the military because that was kind of more the route, especially during that sensitive time with nine 11 then. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I wanted to do the enlisted route anyway. I grew up right next to Fort Benning. So, um, even from a young age, kind of had an idea of the difference between enlisted officer, the different jobs in the army, what I wanted to do. I would talk to a lot of people. Um, so yeah, I kind of went in with, I want to say a purpose, but a direction of how I knew I wanted to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, as soon as that happened, I pretty much already had a plan, knew the job I wanted to do, knew where I wanted to go, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, as soon as September 11th happened, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin was like, nah, I gotta go right now. So that's when it happened. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine, but I, I'm, I'm actually interested for your reasoning. Why? Cause like I, when I enlisted, I definitely could have went to college, but I didn't, I didn't want to. I was like, the only way to get out of here is like, if I just joined the army right now and obviously right. had no college credit or anything like that, you knew you could go to college and then be an officer. So why didn't you want to be an officer? Um, I mean, people had told me from kind of, even when I was little, like I went to church with this guy that was, he was enlisted. I think he was in third Ranger battalion. 
and he would kind of coach me along and you know we used to call i think he was knee seven we used to call him sir and he it started real early with that whole like don't call me sir you know <laughs> I, I work for a living type of thing so i would get curious ask the differences on that what do you mean you work for a living um so they kind of explain nothing you know i've known some really good officers um but at the same time you hit that oh three mark you're kind of removed from the day-to-day operations of things and move more to a desk job. And that's just not what I wanted. Uh, you know, I wanted to be whatever that was. I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to be the guy running around in the woods. I wanted to wear the face paint. I wanted to do all of that. Um, kind of still to the same today, 37 years old. I don't want to be in charge of anybody. I just want to do my own thing and mm-hmm. have fun and not have to worry about what everybody else is doing. Yeah. Yeah. So how many, um, overall deployments, uh, did you do and what was kind of your most memorable time or your most memorable deployment that you've had? Um, so I did three total deployments. I was there for the invasion. Um, I went in unassigned airborne. So I wanted airborne in my contract. People told me you can't go wrong jumping out of planes. Um, fun side fact, I'd never ridden in an airplane until airborne school. So my first trip in an airplane was jumping out of it. (laughs) Nice. Um, Well, you found the the safest way to leave an aircraft. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So first five airplane rides I jumped out of, sixth airplane ride was to Iraq. So I finished airborne school February, I think, like February 16th of 2003, got to my unit couple days later and by the end of february was already sitting in kuwait waiting to cross the border wow um that deployment to be honest i don't i don't have a lot of memories of it i don't know if i was just so young i didn't know what um, was really going on what was really happening i didn't see the big picture of things and i was getting the shit smoked out on me for six to seven months Mm -hmm. of the 11 month deployment so probably tried to cancel a lot of that out of my head, but, um, that one, it was fun. It was different. It was a good experience, but I, I wouldn't call it memorable mm-hmm. just because there's not a whole lot of details that I have of it. Um, I went back for Oh five and Oh six and we were in Baghdad for about the first two months of that mm-hmm. and then transitioned to Samara and Samara was a, hotbed at that time it was where the i think it was called the al Ascari mosque um i don't remember the exact name it was the big golden mosque that got blown up Mm. and pretty much launched iraq in the civil war that was probably 500 meters from our patrol base i mean we saw it every single day lived or worked around it and it just blew up and didn't have any idea how hot things would get after that but that was probably my most uh, memorable, memorable deployment. And then went back for 07 to 08. And that was things that wind wound down. It was getting pretty boring. Mm -hmm. Um, I was already stopped lost. So I lost all motivation kind of to be there. (laughs) Um, We we talked, got got out shortly after that. We talked about it. I think in Jeremiah's podcast, but you're the first person I think we've had on that actually happened to. Mm -hmm. So can you remind us what, what stop, stop loss? Yeah. Remind us what stop loss is. And then also like, where were you at in your contract when you got stop lost? <laughs> it's 
So it's pretty blunt definition. They, I enlisted for five years, so September of 02 to September of 07. So I was supposed to get out September 17th of 07. I got stop loss to deploy on September 19th of 2007. So what the hell? I actually got my stop loss orders, I think, like July of that year. Um, and a quick definition of what it is, it's basically the Army saying, hey, you're supposed to get out, but just kidding. And they can hold you for pretty much an indefinite time up till that eight years. So I wound up getting held 19 months, I think, or 18 months. Um, So I didn't, I was supposed to get out September of 2007. I got out March of 2009. So an extra year and a half they kept you in for. Yeah. Jeez. And it worked out because they passed some kind of law where you get $500 for each month you were stop lost. Yep. So I got that check about four or five months after I got out of the army. So that was a nice little bonus after I'd already started college. I yeah. completely forgot uh, about that. That is nice that they yeah, did well, that. But I they mean, were supposed to do like, it was supposed to be like 1500 a month. Yeah. And oh man, all, all I could see was dollar signs. And then they <laughs> shot it down the last second and gave 500. I mean, it was still a good little chunk of change, but yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I, to, to me, still, even that's like, Yes, it's kind of an unexpected thing because, yes, you do sign a contract. But at the same time, like there are stories and I don't know if this happened to you of people literally like having a job or enrolling in school, moving their families like to set up them getting out and then them getting stop lost oh, and having to pull it all back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That's I mean, that, the worst. you know, it's kind of ironic the like the month or the day that i got you know that we deployed and how close it was my ets but i'm kind of glad because we had guys that were supposed to get out in july and they had turned in all of their gear i mean they were in the final days of their out processing and the army just kind of threw that hammer down at the last second and was like everyone stop loss no one's going anywhere so all this and i mean Dan, you know how much of a pain in the ass it is to get out of the army, turning in every piece of equipment, cleaning it, finding it, signing out. So these guys had done all of that. And two days away, had already packed up their house, moved their family across country. Wow. The army's like, go draw it all back out. So, yeah, it's a luckily I hadn't started anything. I hadn't turned out. There were rumors flying that, okay, maybe a stop loss is coming. So. Kind of, kind of saw it coming. So, what do you, it worked out in the end. What do you do in those situations where you move your family? Like, do they basically still move into a new home? They basically have to still go through with all that. So, the army pays for you to move, and I, I don't know what happened because I know it happened to a lot of people, but I don't know if they ended up paying for the move twice. I don't really know. They're wasting a lot of money just to keep people around. Yeah. Uh, what's crazy is, yeah. My- if you came from, um, there are so many people like in special operations that reenlisted because if you got stop lost on your exit out, you got stop lost to a needs of the army, mm. meaning you were serving in special operations, but then you get stop lost and assigned to another unit somewhere else that has a need. What the hell? Yeah. So like you would get pulled no out thanks. of your unit. So you're no longer like special operations. No. That's crazy. Yeah. It was nuts. It was well, a crazy time. Luckily, that didn't that didn't happen with us. Thank yeah. God. Like I stayed exactly where I was. Mm-hmm. Actually, got promoted again. Um, so, like I said, it worked out in the end. But yeah, I mean, some of those guys, my buddy that that happened to, that he got the orders in July. His family was just 
pretty much went about their business. Uh, he had no ties to Fort Campbell whatsoever left. And as soon as he got back, he out-processed and went home and they had already had their home and wherever he lived. I don't know. So I want to yeah, go back weird, to, to what that was like. Um, kind of like the, I guess, security detail or like more on the daily, you know, like you said with that mosque that was destroyed and it kicked Iraq into a civil war. I mean, what was that like kind of being, you know, very close by to all that happening? Was it kind of like on guard all day long because of what was going on like in the streets nearby? Yeah, I mean... If I'm being honest, I don't remember any, we got a lot of threats of stuff happening. Um, but as far as I can remember, not a whole lot changed our day to day. Mm -hmm. Um, we would do long story short, we would give, uh, these mosque assessments. So we would have to go out like two or three times a day, basically find a building to hide in, take an interpreter with us and listen to what they were saying over the various mosques. Mm. Um, cause they would do like a call to arms or they would even announce like we're attacking the soldiers patrol base today at 5 PM, you know, like, Jeez. so we would listen, get a drop on all that stuff. Um, and that golden moss was one of the main ones that we would always listen to. So I think I told you both, uh, so I was the mortar section sergeant for that deployment mm -hmm. and we took indirect fire every day, all day, you know, I, I, we had a count. It was like 900 rounds of indirect fire in the six months that we were Jeez. there. And every time one would happen, I would have to go out, find the tail fin, do a crater analysis to try and find out where it was launched from all of this stuff. And they always hit when I was sleeping. So I remember being asleep and just <laughs> hearing that <laughs> it kind of blew up. And I was like, oh, somebody's going to come wake me up any second. I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> go do this and they didn't and like an hour passed and my lieutenant came down and he goes hey you remember the golden mosque i'm like remember he goes yeah it's not there anymore and i was shot up in bed like what it's not there so we run out um and yeah after the the coming days after that it was a whole lot of you know the, the mahdi army is bringing four thousand troops to samara Jeez. Or this person was coming here to fight and none of it ever happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, smart was it's, it was a hotbed in its own right. Like stuff was always going on there, but I don't remember it getting any less or any more because of the golden mosque. I think that took a while to, to kind of play out. Like that's what caused the troop surge and all of that. But mm -hmm. at the time, everything, the balls kind of rolled slowly for us to see any immediate change in it. Um, to go back a little bit, just for people that are listening. So, the um, tail fin is obviously the end of a mortar round, which is an explosive that launches in the air and falls down, right? So you're looking for like Correct. any remnants left yeah. over from like mortars to kind of track where they come from or what degree they were launched at. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So our main purpose of doing that. So movies make mortar explosions look way more dramatic than they are. Um, it's usually just a, a quick smoke cloud, a loud bang. And then the I'm trying to think, I think it was 82 millimeter was their mortar system. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot of metal that explodes, a lot of shrapnel that goes out. But if you're not within, I'd say, 25, 30 yards of it, you're probably okay other than some ear ringing. So we would go out. First time I did it, I was expecting to see this big crater. And I was like, oh, this is going to be easy. All I got to do is look for the big crater. It's like three inches wide, maybe an inch deep into the 
you know, the hard packed dirt oh, and wow. your lower, the tough end would usually be completely intact. It wouldn't mm-hmm. really blow up. It may mangle a little bit, um, but you could find that. Um, and then not to get too technical, but rockets kind of their line of sight. So they fly through the air and they hit mm-hmm. kind of a, not a straight line, but kind of a straight line. Mortars are high angles. So they go straight up, come straight back down and it blows the, debris back towards the area where it was shot from. Mm. So we would shoot our azimuth through that, find the max range of the mortar, and then correlate it to a huge printout of basically a Google maps printout and try to find areas within that, that looked good for them to shoot mortars from and then set sniper teams on those to try and catch them. So that was the overall mission with that. That's interesting. And I imagine when you have a sniper team that goes out there and uh, eliminates one mortar team, it's kind of like they probably just fucking pop up like weeds. Like I imagine they're just like, it would would go away for about two or three days just so they could get reorganized and then it would start back up. But I mean, Mm -hmm. they would like bury the mortar tubes in the ground at the, you know, the angle that they needed to shoot to hit us. What the hell? And they would just drive up in trucks, drop three or four rounds and drive away in the truck. I mean, they'd be taking 30 seconds to, to launch. I mean, it wasn't super accurate. We had a couple guys get hit with shrapnel. Nobody seriously. Um, I got the most boring one I got. It landed in our patrol base as I was walking to the shower and I was in like flip-flops and ranger panties with a towel around my neck. And that was <laughs> the worst mortar attack I ever took. So <laughs> Well, you're just trying to enjoy your shower, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? Um, but yeah, most of it was pretty inaccurate. Okay. Can you kind of remember, uh, if you can get into it, like one maybe your favorite experiences of, I don't know, I can't really say it's like a favorite experience of being overseas on deployment and fighting, but was there one like mission, one raid or anything like that that you kind of remember vaguely about? Um, not specifically one of the biggest, I, I missed out on one of the, I can't remember what it was called now. Um, I think it was called operation striker. It was supposed to be like the largest air assault of us forces. And like, I think since desert storm or something like that. And mm-hmm. I was on mid tour leave when it happened. So I heard all of their cool stories about it, but I was actually gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Tamara was kind of a lot of groundhog day, but a lot of fun mm-hmm. um every single night because we pretty much only work at night and we would try and gain intel about people in our area and then just try to go find them every night um i think y'all discuss what hvt's high value targets are mm-hmm. um, so we would get our little tier of high value targets and just try to find them in the area um so so you have fun scavenger hunt that <laughs> what's that so that's like a fun scavenger hunt <laughs> yeah exactly there were a lot of dry holes you know we would hit the wrong house probably four times a night and then Jeez. come back and finally every now and then get lucky but yeah i mean we would drive trucks through gates we would throw ladders climb over the gates whatever we had to do to get into these houses mm-hmm. and hit them and you know oops, sorry wrong house and then go to the next one i mean it was just fast-paced a lot of fun. We had plenty of equipment. We had plenty of people on our side, but the other fun thing is we were out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And it was like one, we had two patrol bases in Samara 
um, Patrol Base Olson and Yuvani, they've since changed names and been handed over and everything. But mm-hmm. um, they, we, it was just like the Alamo. We were in the middle of nowhere and attached mm-hmm. to a specialist team. So we had all of their assets and got to hang out with them on a day-to-day basis, live with them, share their equipment, run missions with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one was definitely just a lot of fun on that deployment. Did you, uh, and feel free to uh, skip this question, but do you have any like kind of, uh, on the flip side of that, were there any, like some of your worst experiences, was there any, you know, missions or anything, or just maybe it's just being in a certain area that was just a boring time of, of being out there. Um, I, they all kind of hinge on that second deployment, man. I mean, that okay. that's where I felt like that deployment was the one that I'd signed up, you know, when I'd imagined being in the army as a kid, that deployment was it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first deployment was just a lot of, you know, we're going to go here and secure this town for three days. And then after that three days, we pick up everything and we move to the next place for three days and you can never calm down. I went like three months without a shower, um, you know, just skinny malnourished, no equipment or half of our equipment had fell off a ship in the Atlantic. I think like the Connex as it said, oh, come unstrapped and fell off the ship. So we had a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, that second deployment, I mean, some of the worst times, you know, in, in comparison, you had the good times and the bad. That's when my buddy Niall, that's when he got killed. Um, another friend of mine, he's a firefighter up in New York city, somewhere around there. Now he mm-hmm. got blown up pretty bad. And I remember having to wash his gear off. Like he got airlifted out and never came back. Um, but we had to clean his gear off in order for it to be like sent back and reaccounted for. And I remember just so much blood all over that gear and having to wash it out with just basically water bottles. Um, so yeah, like some of the lowest of lows and very high highs on that deployment. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> and then, um, so after your military career, um, what was your personal experience like transitioning back to the civilian, you know, lifestyle? Was it fairly easy? Did you kind of have like a passion already lined up when you, um, separated from the military? Um, no, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I got out. I looked back at that, uh, you know, stop loss. Like I was mad when I got stop loss, Mm -hmm. but looking back, if I would have got out in 07, I probably would have been homeless. I had zero direction. So, at least that last year and a half, it kind of pushed me in the right direction. Um, my transition initially was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it didn't really hit till like three or four years later. And I was like, oh man, I'm way above. I'm <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, but when I first got out, I took a road trip for like two and a half months, I think, just traveling across the U.S., um, that summer I helped out at a summer camp with one of my lifelong friends didn't work like the army. I don't know if they did the same when you got out, but they give you like six months unemployment for free. You don't have to check in. You don't have to do anything. They're just like, here's an unemployment check. So I was on that helping out until I started school. Um, I was still getting paid by the army for two of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just a time to relax, chill out, kind of see a different side I, I could be by myself if I wanted to. I could hang out with friends if I wanted to visit people I hadn't seen in forever and then started school and was kind of able to be that, that college kid again for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
wasn't until about 2013 after I graduated, had all this stuff lined up, wanted to go be like a park ranger out West. Then I was like, Oh, I'll be a police officer. None of that was really working out. I got a job at Bass Pro, <laughs> like a sales guy on the floor at Bass Pro. And I was like 31 or 32. And I was like, well, this ain't where I wanted to be. So <laughs> then it, it was like a delayed bad transition from the military. Yeah. So when you transitioned, did you, cause you and I went to app together. I should make that. Yeah. Uh, App clear, State University. Yeah. Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. And, uh, so that's where we first met through mutual friend, Steve Bodefeld. But, uh, is yeah. that where you first went was app state? Yeah. So, it was kind of a funny story. So I used to grow or when I was growing up, I would go skiing up there once a year with a church group mm -hmm. and love the area, love skiing. And then one of my best friends in the army kind of took the opposite route of me. He went to college first and then joined the army. Um, still did enlisted, but he had a bachelor's degree and still one of my best friends. He actually moved to Florida a couple of years ago. And, um, he was like, man, you should go to App State. And I was like, eh, where's that? And he was like, Boone, North Carolina. I was like, oh, I know Boone. Like I used to go to Boone all the time through my childhood. So I had kind of had my mind set on App State from the beginning. Mm -hmm. But everybody told me, you know, broaden your horizons, apply to several different schools. You're not going to get into your first choice or you're not going to get into every school. So I applied to like 15 colleges, like University of Alabama, Auburn, Tennessee, uh, University of Montana, like all these places. I was just Googling campuses and would look. And <laughs> oh, that one looks pretty. <laughs> my, what's that? You're like, oh, that one looks pretty in Montana. I'll apply for that one. Yeah, exactly. I was like, ooh, mountains. Um, so I started looking at all these different places. And turns out since I was 25, I was on academic forgiveness, basically. Like they didn't care what my high school scores were. They didn't care what my SATs and ACTs were. And then they knew that the GI Bill was just an, uh, a blank check for tuition. Mm -hmm. So I got accepted to every school that I applied to. <laughs> that so now I'm crazy. sitting here with 15 <laughs> acceptance letters. And I was like, uh, how do I make this pick? So still went to app, still love that place. Like looking back, don't know why I ever moved away from, from that area. But yeah, absolutely loved it there. There are going to be people listening that, that hate hearing that you got accepted by all 15 that you applied for. There's people yeah. probably like, I fucking applied for like 40 and I got two. <laughs> well, that's what I thought would happen to me because I didn't, I mean, I may have to relook up the definition of mediocre, but that was probably the best <laughs> word to describe me all through high school. Um, you know, it was like C's get degrees type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I made honor roll one year in high school and it was when like, three quarters of my day was shop classes for like welding and carpentry. And I was like, of course I'm going to get on a roll on that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, while, while you were at app too, I actually, um, knew this, you were the president of the student veterans association, right? Yeah. So I actually enjoyed doing that. It, it, it was weird. I don't keep up with a lot of those guys, probably you and Steve are about the only two. Um, but do you remember, did you ever meet Mark? Uh, I won't say his last name, but he was a former Marine. He was there. He may have graduated by the time you got there, but he was like the president of it when I got there. And there were two members and this dude, he's a great guy. I've talked to him a couple of times over the year, like, 
like super solid guy, but he was like a Vietnam veteran mentality. He was our age, but he would blouse his blue jeans above his combat boots that he still wore to college. He had the assault pack for his book bag. He wore a Marine Corps shirt every day. It like, you know how Marines do that roll on their cap. Yep. He would do that, all of his ball caps. And so he was the president when I first got there. Mm. And then I kind of took it over after he left and was like, man, like, I love Mark. I'm glad he started this because I guess they didn't have one before he got there. And I was like, I'm glad he started this, but we really need to reach out to just a different genre of veterans. Like Mm -hmm. all of our student vet meetings can't be at the VFW. They can't, (laughs) I can't leave with emphysema every time I leave one of these meetings. Um, so started just trying to change it around. And yeah, I mean, I actually had a a fun time running it. It got up to probably 35 or 40 members. Um, what is that? I looked it up the other day. Was that sorry to cut you off. I'm just curious what the uh, organization is, uh, like technically about, like, so if it's still an active program at app state, you know, what is it essentially, you know, all about there? So I looked it up the other day when we started it, it was just like a, uh, it was just like somewhere we could hang out. You mm-hmm. know, you got guys that are coming in 25 to 30 years old. They're removed. They're freshmen with 17 year old freshmen. Um, and it was just a way for us to connect and have some kind of similarities, but we started pushing for stuff like we wanted a vet outreach center. So basically somewhere that veterans could go because they're, they're so different than everybody else coming in. You know, I went through freshman orientation and they're like, you have to stay in the dorms for freshman orientation. I was like, I'm not staying in the dorms. I'm 25 years old. I don't care what y'all have to do. I just won't go to school here. I'm not staying in the dorms. Mm-hmm. Um, so we wanted something just different set up where veterans could have their own program coming through and starting out. Um, didn't happen while I was there, but I looked it up the other day and I mean, they have like a student veteran outreach coordinator that works for the school. That's cool. Um, and I, I remember her, she, she worked to, for the school in a different capacity when I was there, but I guess she took over that new position. I think it's got like its own office now. Um, oh, it's, it's huge. They still use my logo that I made. So mm-hmm. pretty happy about that. <laughs> nice. um, but yeah, it looks like it's really taken off. So yeah, I actually, I was there at the, um, uh, basically the ribbon cutting for it. Um, yeah. cause I think it was in, it was 2017 or 2018 when they officially opened it as the student veteran resource center. And it's, it's actually very cool. I'm I wish more campuses would do this. I know several of them do, but um, it's actually like a, basically a loft like a, or a lobby where, you know, veterans can just hang out and chill and sit in there and just, you know, talk about whatever. But then also they move the office of the um, there was uh, the person you're talking about. They moved her office over. So she was the now not only the like financial aid coordinator, but she's the overall like student veteran resource officer or I, I don't know exactly yeah. her title, but um, so it's actually really cool what app has done. And it's cool because I wanted to talk about this because I knew, you know, you basically helped push the program along to really gain some traction and all the ideas yeah. that you guys came up with in those early years really have come to fruition and really have, have grown to a point where even I'm like, wow, this is, it's kind of impressive how much apps put into this. Right. Yeah. And we, I feel like we did, Um, Do you remember Bob Gibbard? He was the, yeah. So he was big into it um, and gave a lot of resources to it. And he, 
he kind of had the vision, but kind of used to talk to me all the time. He was like, I'm old and I work for the school. Like I can start this up. Like, this is my vision. This is what I want, but I'm going to need y'all to kind of push it. Yep. Um, so that was just my idea at first is how can we reach out to people like, it's nothing against the people at the VFW. It's nothing against the old veterans, but they're not in school. So mm-hmm. why am I reaching out to them? Why am I trying to make that my, my base? So I was like, how can we bring this back to the school and just, first of all, get a gathering, get people there because everything works in numbers, um, get people interested in it. We would do events. We would do meetups. We did raffles. We did charity stuff. Um, tried to raffle a motorcycle, which went horrible. And I had to ride it to the stadium in like 20 degree weather one morning. That one was horrible. It didn't work out, but <laughs> just doing stuff like that to get notification, get people to notice you and then start working on, okay, we're here. We have a pretty large number of people in this, you know, this demographic at the school, you know, it's not just two or three of us. Mm-hmm. Now, how can we get the resources that, that help make it easier for us to transition back into this yeah um how many so people yeah, did man, you guys I'm, have i'm super stoked to see that it turned into that how many people did you guys have that, in the program um i think when i took it over we had like five or six and i think by the time i graduated it was up to like 35 or 40 like registered oh, wow you know, like people that were actually part of it. And then I got us affiliated with the student veterans of America, mm-hmm. which kind of does seem a little more legitimate because we're a chapter of a nationwide organization. Um, so that made it seem a little more legitimate. Now you could actually register. It's something that you could put on, I don't know, but resume, maybe, I don't know, but mm-hmm. to show that you actually belong to a group that was affiliated with app state, not just, a group of people that hung out at app state. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, it, it grew pretty big. I'm, I'm super excited to know that it's still going on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, you touched on it a little bit, but, um, you know, we, we talk a lot, especially about the transition and, and I feel like the transition into college is something we haven't really hit on very much. No. And so, you know, what was that experience like for you, especially in the classroom day to day, like dealing with a bunch of college students that just came from high school and have no relation to what you have experienced, you know, while you were, you know, serving in the army and then deploying multiple times overseas. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely different. I think you hit on it with like, I would say for the first six months I was there, I was kind of angry at like, why don't these kids get it? You know, like they don't know what's going on overseas. They don't know what other people their age are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of like you said, you know, that that's not their fault. It, it's, they haven't had that experience. That's not their experience to have. So it's not their fault that they don't see what I've seen. Um, and then just the age factor. Like I, said, I remember the freshman orientation coming down like two weeks before classes started and they were like, all freshmen have to stay in this dorm for the night. And I was like, no, I'm getting a hotel. They were like, no, you're a freshman. You have to stay in the dorm. I was like, no, well, unenroll me because I'm not, I'm not going to this school (laughs) if I got to stay in the dorm for two nights with freshmen. Um, So they let me stay in the hotel, but yeah, it was just weird. Um, Remember the, like one of the classes, I mean, the kid were going around doing the whole you know, my name is this, I did this over the summer, you know, just introducing yourself. 
dad brought up my deployments and my service and this kid's like like i'm not even done talking and he's like did you kill anybody oh shit and like bob gibbard was like bro you gotta buy him a drink or something first like you just can't lead with that you can't start with that (laughs) so yeah it's just people don't don't understand um and then i think a combination of being a veteran and just having that age on everybody. I mean, you're a lot more driven. You're a lot more focused. You're a lot more experienced. So some of the college professors would say things. They're used to 17-year-olds just eating it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, um, no, excuse me. Excuse me. I got something to say about that. So it's it's a different experience. I, I eventually would just, about that year or two, I was like, you know what? I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to focus on this, and I'm going to get out of here. It's not. It's not worth trying to change the system over my experience. So that's that's, yeah. that's kind of crazy. Like the the age kind of difference in that gap. Like mentally, you know, I think it's safe to say that all the college women flock to John. Is, is that <laughs> sound about right to you? <laughs> no, it's not a safe assessment at all. <laughs> no. no, I mean it was it was a little different. Like I showed up there, I had I think I had at least one sleeve tattoo, which at the time, I feel like everybody's got sleeve tattoos now, but in what was that, 2009, mm-hmm. like it wasn't as prevalent. So I showed up with sleeve tattoos. I had a Harley, like I had money. I had a nice apartment. I had nice stuff in my apartment. Bro, you know, come so on. Like, I feel like any college girl, Harley, <laughs> sleeve tattoos, <laughs> fucking 25 years old, more mature, fought overseas. I don't know, man. But then I was oblivious to it. Like, yeah. I, even if it did happen, I don't think I realized it because, like, I was back in nature. I wasn't in a desert. I wasn't like I could go to bed and not be gritty. I could take a shower twice a day if I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, and one of the reasons I went to App was to be in the mountains, yeah. uh, you know, unlimited abundance of trails to hike. And then the winter came and you could ski and snowboard and whitewater raft and, you know, so I was so focused on all that stuff that I didn't care. I mean, I met my first wife there. But, well, only wife, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, got, so got three that, more somewhere. That should be a hit to how that turned out. But yeah, we <laughs> did meet there. So, and um, it's interesting. It's funny that you were talking about how you uh, they almost they told you you had to stay in the dorm. I remember when I applied and everything, um, and I went through the exact same thing. They tried telling me that I had to stay in the dorm. I was like, are you what? moving my wife there with with me then? And they were like, wait, you're married? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I have, like I'm married. We already have a house. Like, what do you, how can you tell me that I, I, I can't live at home? And they're like, all right, we, uh, we need to figure this out. <laughs> and, you know, it's just somebody who well, doesn't what... know. But it was just hilarious that they they legitimately thought that because I was a freshman, I had to live in the dorm. That's interesting that they just right. expect that you're going to be a certain age and expect that like, so you're not going to be on your own married what it or is, anything. What it is, is the, it's, it's honestly a money-making thing. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Most, most universities require students their first year to live in the dorm. And they say it's to give you the experience, but you don't live in the dorm for free. You have to pay for it and you have to pay a, a meal plan. What? And it's like, a ridiculous amount monthly for how little you get. I mean, yeah, the rooms are were literally the size of this office. That's crazy. That's They're like seven hundred square feet, if that. Yeah, and it was like you know a shared bathroom and stuff. It's it's not like it was 
anything fancy and you're paying I don't know. I I have no idea how much it was, but I, I know everybody complained about it because it was too expensive for what you got. So, yeah, I mean, basically you just got to sling drugs in out of your <laughs> room and, you know, it pays for itself. <laughs> hey, man, there's <laughs> plenty of stories there. I've uh, it, it, it got around many times whenever there was like a drug bust on campus. <laughs> That's funny. It's <laughs> a very normal not, to, thing. not even to get off track, but I know we're talking about App State and you both went there and met there. But I remember coming up to north carolina and visiting dan when he lived in boone and i remember there was one night i think i landed from the airport drove up to boone and met up with uh, tanya his wife uh before he got out of class or i think he had like a late meeting and we met in this building and dan was telling me it was like haunted or there was like some like girl that died there or something and like all the campus kids are like super like leery about hanging out there at night and shit now it was a uh, Catherine harper hall you spend oh, any yeah, time yeah, there yeah. in the in the basement <laughs> where the uh, like pottery studio and everything is. It's a pretty creepy part of the building, and yeah, there was stories about I don't know, supposedly people killing themselves in the bathrooms, which is terrible. First of all, Jesus, but also hilarious that it was like a legitimate rumor that people would be freaked out about going in that hallway. About <laughs> like you would you literally watch people go into that building and like run through that hallway so that they could just get from one classroom to the next and not have to be in the hallway any longer than they needed to. Oh shit. It's, it's I remember a- those stories about the bodies under the convocation center. Yep. And then I came to find out in a way that was true. I guess my, cause all my classes were over there and they were like, yeah, it's the medical science building too. So they keep cadavers down there. And I was like, what? There's really dead bodies under the complication center. So yeah, I guess that rumor was true. <laughs> well, I guess you'll have to fly up North Carolina or drive from uh, Florida and let's go check it out. <laughs> I am definitely down. I need to get back up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a coir. I want to, um, Speaking of which, you know, with you being part of the Student Veterans Association, were there any other organizations that you were a part of? Um, just obviously like, you know, veteran related or any other ones that you kind of were, you know, wanting to be a part of to support other veterans? Um, not really. Like I joined the VFW and the American Legion. I never really did anything with them. I just paid the dues to say I belonged. Um, I rode with, so I had a Harley when I was up there, used to ride a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I rode with a can't call it an MC. It was an association called the combat vets association. Um, started out being pretty cool. Um, but again, the, the, like the genre of vets that you were with, it was a lot of older guys and I just didn't, you know, nothing against them. I mean, they had their ways. The next war that happens when we're all old, they'll probably make fun of the way that we are. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but it it was just different. So I rode with that for a little bit. And then I, I kind of just pittered out of that. Um, but yeah, Student Veterans Association was kind of the only thing I did. And I liked it. It kind of just gave me that. Like I've always needed some kind of purpose to do whatever I do. Um, like I learned to scuba dive. And the first certification after open water I was like, I want to do the search and rescue, you know, like what's the point in just going underwater and looking at stuff. I want to have a task while I'm down here. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like my task in college was to run that and get that up and going. So I enjoyed having that, but yeah, I didn't really have time for any other organizations either. What is that like being a part of that search and rescue side of things? Like, oh, how no, tra- I haven't taken it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed interesting. It, and you're like, like, oh, like 
<laughs> yeah, everything I've ever done, I've I've been like, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think. That's just always the example I use. Like, I can't just get a certification and go underwater and be like, well, I'm down here now. Now what? You know, like, give me some blocks to put together or like, <laughs> I, I don't know, add something to it. I got to have something else. I would love to get the search and rescue one, but I have no no idea what it entails. Yeah. I'd looked at our, not the derail, but I'd looked at our department's um, dive team. They have like a central Florida dive team, I think. Mm-hmm and it sounded fun and so i realized you're diving in like florida swamps where you can't mm-hmm. see two or three inches in front of your face and you're just feeling around for whatever you're looking for and i was like nah that no, sounds like a nightmare yeah so yeah, uh exactly from what i hear i'm gonna throw dan under the bus right now because i remember coming down to uh Uh-oh. to florida and talking with you about it but from what i heard dan used to be quite a bit of a party animal oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i loved it so which story be, do you want to hear oh, if i want to hear all of it because i know the dan the uh underage drinking dan you know obviously us growing up being teenagers and drinking and getting in trouble but also you know we were still you know 21 and visiting each other every few years and getting drunk together but um from what i hear you know when you get a couple of ranger guys together and you get you out there it just turns into chaos oh it was awesome man so i remember so I'd met Steve first. So Steve got there first. Uh, he came to one random student vets meeting. I don't think he came to many more after that, but that one, I was like, man, this dude's awesome. Like, like we need to hang out. So me and Steve just almost every day we're hanging out and he was redoing that house up there on that hilltop. And he was putting that kitchen island thing. In. And I remember I would show up at like, or I'd had a carpentry background from all the like trade schools and high school and all that stuff. So it was nice to just be able to work with somebody and Steve is phenomenal at that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so he would give me small little projects and I remember we would drink coffee from like seven to about 10 and then we would break out yingling black and tans and drink those from like 10 AM to about midnight oh, shit. and then drive home or Uber home, whatever. Uh, so yeah, then Dan show, I don't remember when you came, but it was about a year after Steve, I think. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, my buddy Dan's coming here too. And uh, yeah, dude, I just remember being like the three amigos after that. Like we would all go hunt. We would hunt in the same field out at the place where I lived and like, like crossing fields of fire on deer <laughs> all in the same field. So if one couldn't get it, the other one would. Um, anytime one of us would shoot a deer, we'd bring it over and I'll skin it together. And it was just always alcohol fueled. Um, but funny story, Dan, do you remember my bachelor party? Oh yes. So everybody I've talked to, so I told my dad about the book and, uh, I was like, yeah, do you remember Dan Blakely? And he goes, yeah, I think so. And I was like, he was one of the Rangers that, uh, so to give everybody a backstory, my bachelor party, it was on an Island in the middle of Watauga Lake. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, I don't want to do anything. I just want to drink and hang out for like three days. So I looked into renting a pontoon boat and it was a massive pontoon boat. It fit like 15 people on it. And it was like, not that far from shore where everybody parks. So I said, bring as much as you want. Like you can bring a tent, you can bring all the food, you can bring everything. We can make as many trips to shore as you want. So I had people do that. They were bringing like all kinds of stuff. 
Him and Dan show up with the largest cooler I've ever seen in my life to this day, full of yingling. <laughs> Needed like four people to carry it. Like one change of clothes and a hammock. And yep. so awesome. priorities. So anyway, priorities. I'm, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm telling my dad about this, and uh, he was like, "Yeah, I remember him. He was the one that was making fun of my uh, my big tent. Like, I guess he brought this big like awning thing." And they were all making fun of it. And then like the second night we're there, this torrential downpour with a storm came through and we were all huddled up under that tent around the campfire. And my dad's like, yeah, my tent's not so stupid now, is it? <laughs> and then, so just today I text my brother, I'm going to pull it up so I can say it right. So I was like, yeah, you know, told him about the project and the book and the podcast. And I was like, do you remember Dan Blakely? He was on my bachelor party, one of the rangers that brought a hammock. And I'm reading verbatim. He said, yeah, the one that got pissed at me for using the blowtorch, if I remember correctly. <laughs> he said when he was trying to start a fire to cook a hot dog, he was trying to start it with a fire still. I grabbed the torch and poof. And he said, man, what the hell? That's the problem with you Winnebago campers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so shit. everybody that I talked to has a story about that weekend. <laughs> and you and Steve <laughs> and shenanigans out there. So, yeah, that I, was a lot of fun, though, man. I would love to recreate that. I know. We, we talked about it, I don't know, probably at least a dozen times about redoing that weekend because we uh we we dubbed that island the island full of assholes because we were just all making fun of each other the entire time and like <laughs> not letting down at all but it was hilarious cuz you know it's when you're around a good group of people you know that don't take anything to heart mm -hmm. and you know they don't get butt hurt about something then you could just you know joke around and and have a good time and and you know it was just about oh absolutely enjoying the wilderness and having some drinks and yeah you know, sitting around a campfire do do you remember Brian Gibson? Oh, yeah. So he was another, I think he was in battalion. And yep. He may have got like RFS out of battalion or something, but he, when he got out of the army, he threw hike the Appalachian Trail, like the whole thing, Springer Mountain, Georgia to Mount Condon. And he was all about backpacking, like as little as he could bring. So he had brought like two fifths of Jack or something. And he's trying to drink the same volume as us drinking beer and just got wasted so he stumbles to his tent falls into his tent doesn't zip the flap up legs are hanging out bodies in it and then lays there through the entire torrential storm yep and i remember my dad saying he was like you could through hike the entire appalachian trail but can't walk 30 foot to your tent without falling down <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was just a good time man i love that place it was funny because he he drank he's a, he's a fairly little guy like he's he's fit but he's a little guy He's like probably yeah. I don't know five 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 six something like that, but uh, he was sitting down drinking that whiskey and then stood up and he was like oh and I remember before he went <laughs> to his tent he he was looking up at the stars and had this like really deep epiphany it was like <laughs> guys have you ever just sat in the universe and just thought about your place in time and realized that you're just one soul and it was like something super <laughs> deep like that and we're like everybody stopped and we were all in mid conversation we just stopped and stared at him and we were like brian what the hell was that <laughs> and then we all made fun of him and then he eventually got up and he hadn't gotten up the whole time and he tried finishing that fifth and then he stumbled to his tent and just fell in and that was it he was he was kind of a hippie too because he said when he was deployed he had bought this like 
fancy tapestry or tapestry, however you pronounce it, and hung it on his wall. And people are like, what's up with that blanket? Your mom sent it to you. And he said, it's not a blanket. It's a tapestry. (laughs) He was big into astrology and all this stuff. He was, that was my first friend I ever met at apps. A super cool guy, but yeah. So so I'm assuming your favorite women are the ones that ask you right on the first date what your, your Zodiac is then, right? Yeah. Well, he is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. But yeah, to get back. So all those stories leading into it and damn, when did I come up? I came up a couple of years ago and we met at that brewery. And I remember just think, cause like you were the same as me, like holy jeans or camouflage or like some old t-shirt, like usually an old unit t-shirt. Like that was all we wore everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming back to visit and I was like, hey, man, I'm in Boone. Let's grab a drink. And you're like, okay, there's this cool brewery over here. Let's grab some food. So what, I show up. He's got like the what? Was it AMB? Appalachian Mountain Beer. I don't Mountain remember Beer where brewery. it was. It, I don't, no, I don't, no, 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 no. It, it wasn't that place. It was It was off of King Street, I think. Well, it was a place that had been built since I graduated. But I remember showing up and he's got like slacks with a polo tucked into it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Had, this is Duke, by the way. Um, and he's like, I'm like, hair's all done nice. And I was like, Hey, you want to grab another beer? And you're like, Oh, I really shouldn't. I have a meeting after this. And I was like, <laughs> where's the dad that I remember like, shirts tucked in limited to one beer. Dude, I, uh, I went through like the biggest roller coaster of in, uh, of anybody who attends college, I think from like partying and just having a good time and hunting and doing whatever i wanted to then starting up that solar vehicle team and being like all business all strict like i'm telling you what that was the busiest time of my life still to this day yeah i kind of remember talking to you back then that's funny because people are listening you're like we're literally just reminiscing right now but i think the important message of it all is like i think everybody we just need to fucking get out there and be around the people that uh are the most fun to be around be out in nature and you know, yeah. keep that camaraderie People that going. Make you happy. Yeah. yeah. You know what I love about John is we're on well, a podcast and, you, and then he's he's dipping right yeah. now. <laughs> he's already got a strong Georgia <laughs> accent and then he puts a big old fat dip in his lip. <laughs> what are you dipping? Copenhagen? Copenhagen mint. Oh, shit. They make a mint version now? So, yeah. Funny story. Remember I used to dip Copenhagen long time. Uh-huh. And Florida, we don't have a state tax, but they have a sin tax. So I remember like, just regular long cut in the fiberboard can was like three fifty a can in North Carolina. And I moved down here and I stopped to get two cans and they're like, it's 18 something. Excuse me. What? $18 for two cans. And so I switched, I guess they consider that premium Copenhagen. I guess there's tiers of Copenhagen. <laughs> so I switched to the flavored stuff, winter green and mint. And I'll go back and forth throughout <laughs> the year now. Um, yeah, weird side story, but I'm not paying Florida syntax on all that stuff. So what what that actually goes into my next question. What initially brought you down to Florida and, and moved you away from North Carolina? One thing, an ex-wife. That was it. Yeah. So that tends to happen. Dan remembers my my ex. Um her parents had moved down here and my parents I was born and raised in Alabama. They still live there and um 
So right after we got married, we got to talking about, she was teaching, she graduated a year before I did that. She was teaching at a local high school up there. And um, we just got to talking about like kids and all this and how I knew I'd wanted to go into law enforcement in some way or shape. Um, So we got to talking about that with the weird schedule hours. It'd be nice to be near one of our parents. So we made the decision to move down here. Mm -hmm. And uh, about the time I got settled down here, we split up. And then I was like, well, this is still a pretty good job and short retirement, good pension. Like I'll just stay and stick it out. But yeah, I'm definitely mountain guy at heart. It's, it, it pains me every single day. And that's why I texted Dan. Mm-hmm. I, I think I told you about it, Bo, when you were talking about, you were like outlining your trip. Mm-hmm. You were like, I really don't want to, but I think I'm going to go to Florida. And I was like, man, I hope he still comes and sees me. I know what he's saying and I know what he feels like, but I still hope he comes and sees me. Dude, the funny thing is, is for the longest time, and maybe I'm just, you know, it's funny because there's that rivalry with like California and Florida, you know, it, it's almost like, and I grew up in the shittier yeah. parts, I would say of California. Um, you know, when I think when most people think of California, I think of palm trees and beaches and you know, LA and all that. And I'm like, dude, I grew up in fucking like what small ass town of 15,000 people out in the middle of the desert and there's nothing but meth heads and shit. But it's funny because a part of me like still loves that, that part. But anyways, so I've just always noticed that rivalry and I figured, well, I've seen the beaches of California and I've seen everything like that. And Florida just looks a little bit more like tropical, like, you know, it looks more like Bahamas, the more South you get. And I just never wanted to go there because I think it was like, you know, always hearing rumors about the people there, um, you know, here and And they're all true. (laughs) Yeah. And and then, you know, hearing about like, uh, you know, some areas are a little bit more rough or dirtier than others. But I mean, I guess that's across the nation. That's statewide that you're going to have those. So when I went down there, it's funny because I remember we did that podcast and Dan was telling me he's like, yeah, you know, John, who lives in Florida. He's like, he totally understood what you were getting at about not wanting to go visit Florida. And that was like one of my last few states that I went to. But I actually enjoyed it because you sit on a nice piece of property. Um, You know, you've got cattle there. You've got, you're kind of like, you know, 35, 40 minutes away from, you know, any downtown kind of area. And I actually love that area a lot. And even like the northeastern side, you know, St. Augustine, all those areas are really pretty. Yeah. But I just can't see myself like going to Miami or anything like that. Uh, maybe one day, but uh, just doesn't seem like my scene. I, I still haven't been down there and I've lived here for going on seven or eight years. And I, I can't bring myself like I like the side I live on. I like the waterways. I like being close to the beach, but that that's about as far as it goes. But so like what, I told you, when you came down here, everything that wants to kill you or hurt you mm-hmm. lives here to mm-hmm. include people, animals, insects, reptiles. <laughs> so that's another thing that I, can, I just can't wait to get away from. So yeah, I mean, you all have the, uh, you know, bath salt fucking thing going on for a little uh, while. Yeah. Were you, were you people a police officer? Off, literally. Were you a police officer when that happened? Uh, I don't remember. I remember it happening. I don't remember if I was living down here or not. I mean, we've had our own kind of like that um let let's 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 back it up a little bit so you moved down to florida absolutely um obviously um with your ex-wife and then were you already thinking about becoming a police officer when you were down there or was this kind of a career that just came out of nowhere um to be honest i never saw myself doing it. i thought i'd be career military um and there's times i still wish i was career military but 
Um, my dad's a cop. He was a cop for like 42 years um, or in law enforcement, not, not necessarily a row cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he loved it. Like at 42 years, they kind of had to chase him away. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he still didn't want to quit. He still wants to listen to the radio. He wants to be involved in everything. So when I got out, I was like, okay, like this is something I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not an office. Every day is different. Every TV show you see has something to do with cops, you know, mm-hmm. like law and order, live PD cops, like all these shows. So I'm like, obviously it's gotta be pretty interesting. Um, so I started looking into that. Originally, I wanted to be uh, like a game warden or a park ranger yeah. in Yellowstone or Yosemite or something like that. That's why I went with the degree that I went in, because I would love to do that, be on horseback or four-wheeler patrolling oh, just yeah. thousands of acres of land. That didn't work out. Um, those jobs are pretty limited, pretty few and far between. Mm-hmm. Um, so the good thing about law enforcement is it's everywhere. So when we made the decision to move to Orlando, that's when I was like, that that's what by that point i knew i wanted to be a police officer i just didn't know where so that's how i ended up being an orlando cop now i only saw it uh for a brief moment but is orlando because obviously you hear walt you know disney world and all that but it's still a pretty rough area isn't it around disney or or no just orlando in general yeah i mean i think we've consistently been in the like top 25 for violent crime in America. <laughs> really? It's just, they don't, uh, I'm probably gonna get sued by the city for saying this, but they, they don't want you to like, you'll never see an episode of cops in orange County or Orlando. You'll never see live PD. You'll never see documentaries because all they want is Disney. Mm-hmm. This is Mickey mouse land. Nothing bad happens here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of funny when pulse happened um, that weekend was the, the, the nightclub shooting. Yeah, the nightclub shooting. So it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I wasn't working that weekend, but Friday night, there's a place called the Plaza Live in Orlando. It's a small little concert venue. And Christina Grimmy, who was a uh, contestant on The Voice, mm-hmm. and she was going around doing concerts, she got murdered by a fan at that club what the fuck? on Friday night. Saturday night, Pulse happened which at the time was the worst mass shooting in America. And then Sunday, there was a kid staying at a Disney resort that got eaten by an alligator. Jesus. And I remember it was just a weekend of national news and Mm -hmm. you could just see it in everyone's face. Like, like when is it going to stop? You know? Um, So yeah, plenty still definitely goes on down here. Um, Well, it Pulse. just it, it doesn't was, make the news as much. That was what four or five years ago that that happened. That that twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah, it'd be coming up on uh, five years. I remember uh, hearing about that, and I didn't know too much about it. But um, so, and it's a gay nightclub, isn't it? Yeah. So, did they ever? Yeah, it was a. Uh, what's that? Did they ever find out if that was like a some kind of like hate crime? of why they picked that, that club or that one guy that went in there. Um, to tell you the truth, I'm not real sure. Okay. Um, Cause when something that degree happens, the federal government kind of swoops in and takes over. So I remember they held that crime scene and uh, that club's right off of orange Avenue, which is the main road that runs through downtown. Mm-hmm. And they kept that, you know, like 
four or five blocks just completely closed off for months, mm-hmm. like probably three or four months because they were collecting so much evidence. Um, and I'm not real sure. I know the guy and, and pretty sure all of this is like public now. So, um, but he had pledged allegiance to ISIS in 911 calls. Um, Jeez. But there was some, there were some rumors, and I remember reading some articles that um, he was married and had a kid. But they they said he used to go to that club a lot and mm-hmm. faced rejection or something. So they thought it might have been due to that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't really know to be honest. I think you're definitely, yeah, you're definitely the first person that we've talked to that was military and then now law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people that have served in both like, and end up drawing a lot of parallels um, to the experience, especially when they have to work like, you know, um, uh, like murder crime scenes and things like that. Um, And just the, the hard uh, scenes that you have to go to and whether you're actually doing any sort of investigation or you're just, you know, doing the security and clearing the scene and stuff like that. But, you know, we haven't talked about it on here. What is, what is that like? And is there, I guess, a a certain level of, you know, in the military, like they talk about all the time, right? People that come out of the military end up having PTS or something like that. Like they, they easily in the media draw par- or draw conclusions and, and stereotype people and things like that. And then there ends up being, you know, this, this sprawling network of opportunities for veterans to get help and all this kind of stuff. But, you know, is there something similar to that in law enforcement? Because I would imagine a lot of law enforcement and EMTs and things like that, that are first on the scene end up getting PTS is like, is there a s- also those stereotypes and and is there like support and help? I don't. So yes and no. I don't think there's as much of a stigma around cops as suffering from PTSD. Like there are vets, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of unfair because I feel like a lot of, I'm not like crapping on any one veteran or anything like that, but a lot of veterans don't see anything to give them PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not, I hate to make that generalization, but a lot of these guys I know that deployed, they, they were on these big fobs, which were just pretty much cities, you know, their life didn't change their, their area just changed. Um, but the same resources, those guys can claim PTSD and never be questioned on it. Mm -hmm. Um, but a cop who sees this stuff day in and day out for a 20 to 30 year career. And they say, Hey man, something's bothering me. It's like, what's bothering you? You know, you're, you're in America, you're patrolling where you live, like what bothers you, you know, so that it's kind of a, it's a weird dynamic. Um, there are some, you know, the state and city, they offer some things, they offer counseling programs. Um, one thing that is definitely different is, you know, overseas, you go out, you get into contact with somebody, you wind up shooting, getting shot, um, you know, shooting somebody or maybe not getting shot, but you shoot somebody, you come back, you grab some food, you grab some sleep and you go out the next day. And it's, it's nothing is ever any different here. You know, you shoot somebody, you're off the road for a little bit. It's not a free vacation. Like everybody thinks it is. It's one of my biggest fears is to get relieved shooting somebody because I'm missing out on all this extra duty employment. Mm -hmm. I take a pay cut. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but they you have to be cleared by um you know florida department of law law enforcement they'll investigate the shooting make sure it's good then you gotta be cleared by the state attorney's office and you gotta be cleared by your department and then you gotta see counselors and you know all these things to make sure you're good and, and during that time they essentially strip you of your law enforcement power so you don't have a badge you don't have your gun you yeah. don't have any of these things you're just a, a civilian until you're cleared to go back so yeah there's there's steps in place um for that kind of stuff but i don't think the the stigma definitely doesn't exist mm -hmm. um and i think sometimes the stigma can even be good because it brings attention to a problem that you know stigmas sometimes are seen as bad but sometimes i can bring attention to it mm -hmm. yeah. um, and i don't i don't think enough attention is brought to law enforcement yeah and that's what um, i that's what i was kind of getting at and like because i almost feel like it's it's the opposite and they're at extremes right so veterans are over stigmatized of being broken and all having ptsd because they served in the military period whereas yeah. then in law enforcement it's like I, I don't know, but I, I feel like I don't ever hear it. Like, yes, I've seen it on TV shows every once in a while, or yes, you know, we'll, we'll read one article out of the blue or something like that, but there, it's not a lot. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a fraction. Yeah. I mean, not even less than, you know, it's less than a percent of the articles and the TV shows and the things that are showing like broken veterans and PTSD veterans right. and stuff like that. And so I feel like it's, it's setting up this, uh, I don't know this uh, this idea and stereotype of, of these two different groups that are vastly different, and it almost makes it like that's why. Um, sorry, bring this back around. Like that's why uh, in Washington State, a lot of people have a hard time getting in law enforcement because they believe, like, out of the military, because they believe that you're broken mm. and you're just going to go out there and shoot everybody, and you don't have. <laughs> trigger discipline Jeez. and things like that. And so that's why they don't hire a lot of, well, I won't say this. I don't want to over generalize, but I know a lot of people have a hard time from the military getting into law enforcement mm -hmm. um, because of things like that. Right. It, it's interesting. Cause I know someone, um, I'm not going to list his name on here, but he uh, was discharged um, from being a police officer because he, you know, saw some shit go down and it really messed him up. Um, he was involved in a shooting, saw two of his fellow deputies get shot and killed right in front of him in like, you know, a matter of a minute. And uh, I think it, you know, I, I can't imagine what it's like, but I think it, it mentally really um, set him off. And uh, I think they relieved him yeah. of, of duty because of it, because I think it's like what you said, you have to go through like a psych evaluation. Um, and I think that there are certain things they test you on. And if you just don't meet those qualifications, they're like, you're not fit for duty. Which is sad right. because I know that, you know, policing was his, his career. It's what he loved doing. And it's, it's sad that in a moment well, of and, minutes like that, your life can change. And law enforcement's different for me too. Something I've always thought about is like, I, I'm not devaluing any life, but when you're in the military, you deploy to a country that you don't know anything about. You mm -hmm. don't know those people. You don't know their customs. You don't know their laws. You don't know anything. You're, you're just there and you're, you got a job to do. But in law enforcement, I mean, like these are, I know there's a, there's kind of a nationwide rhetoric right now that law enforcement doesn't care, but all the officers I interact with and all the officers I deal with, they all care. Mm -hmm. um, and you're patrolling 
your community. You're you're patrolling Americans. Um, so when you see this this stuff happen, like these are your people, mm-hmm. you know, this is your country, um, this is your town, this is your city, and you see the bad that happens to them day in and day out. And it, it's not even necessarily murder or anything like that. I mean, just the family situations that you see, you know, like that, that gets, it gets hard after a while. Um, Mm -hmm. Even during the protest, you know, we, we had a good couple of months of heavy, heavy protests Mm -hmm. and, you know, usually you don't let that stuff bother you. You know, you got a job to do. I don't care whatever, but you stand on that line for 12 hours a day and seven days a week. And people are yelling, you're a piece of shit in your face the entire time. Like you start to believe it after a while, you know, mm-hmm. there were nights that I would come home and you're not eating well, you're not sleeping well, you're working. I think I worked 17 days straight. Um, and there were days where I'm like, man, in bed, like, man, maybe I am a piece of shit, you know, like maybe I am that bad cop. So it's interesting. It, it's just a different type of way too. It's interesting you bring that up because I, I wanted to kind of go into that and not get too deep, but I think it is interesting. It's still a um, kind of a sensitive time, you know, where protests are still happening um, and they just were. So it's interesting to have you on, yeah. you know, who, um, you know, as a veteran and, and became a police officer, I kind of want to know more behind the scenes of, you know, what some of those protests are like. Like, are they, do you think, I know that it's not every deputy, but do you think that everybody that stands on that line day in and day out, that's being, you know, verbally and physically abused. Do you think that it makes them change their opinions and want to like, actually, I guess, become better cops and help towards that cause of protesting? Or do you think it has a reverse effect and it just pisses them off to where they're like, fuck these people. Like, I don't care about anybody anymore. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, I think there's a few, like there's no one answer to that really. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't speak on behalf of different departments across America, you know, like, I mean, you look at some of these departments that have been investigated by the department of justice for just decades of police misconduct yeah. and stuff like that. I, I, I can't imagine the distrust that their communities have with them. Um, I can speak on orange County and Orlando. I mean, there, there's people I've always said, that I feel like there's 10% that's going to back, law enforcement, no matter what, no mm-hmm. matter what we do, they're, they're always going to have our back. There's 10% of people that are going to hate us no matter what we do. The 80% in that middle kind of will sway back and forth. Um, and I feel like that's where it's up to the departments to say, you know, Hey, I know this looks bad, but this is what the person did. This is what we're allowed to do by state law and federal law. Mm-hmm. And this is why our officers took the action that they did. And I feel like that 80% can kind of get on board and be like, okay, you know, I, I see that. I, I see the common sense behind that. Yeah. Um, I will say Orange County and Orlando do a pretty good job of that. I patrol one of the worst areas in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not going to name drop it, but it, it's one of in the city limits. It's, one of the worst areas and i'll say most of the people we come into contact with i mean they they trust the police they're glad we're there um even during the protest we're shutting down roads so they can march through this same bad area and the residents i mean i'm seeing people that i arrested last week and they're fist bumping me and like hey man you doing all right what's up with all these people why are they here and i'm like i don't know man and they're like can you tell them to go back home they're they're annoying us it's a lot of noise and i'm like 
I'm trying, man. You know, like <laughs> that's it, funny. It's a different dynamic. And then, you know, we leave and I'm like, all right, I'll see you next week when you're dealing drugs. He's like, all right, man. I'll see you. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's just a different dynamic. So I imagine that a creates... lot of the pro. Sorry, go ahead. That? A lot of the protesters were, you know, I, I think there were three types. There were ones that were actually looking for change and facilitated change. And I agree that change needs to come to the table, you know, change on both sides. There needs to be programs set in place for people. There needs to be programs that, that the police do better. We need to do a better job. Mm -hmm. um, then there's people that no matter what we do, they're not going to be happy unless the police are just completely abolished. Yeah. Um, so no matter what changes they are not going to be happy. And then there's a large group of people that were just like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go get an Instagram picture and, and mm. I'm going to hashtag this. And I think that's why you saw the, the mad protest. that just dwindled out and mm. it went away because everybody got their pictures. They got their attaboy, you know, for the year and then they went away. So, yeah. Yeah. I know there's like, it's such a divided topic too, because I know people that are active, involved in protests that were peaceful people that just wanted to voice their opinion and, you know, and, and, and voice what they're really passionate about. Um, and we're dealing with it, I would say, you know, on a very kind of like the right level. And then you have other people that are kind of dealing with it with the opposite and you're always going to have that divide. Yeah. And it's definitely sensitive. You know, some people may say, well, there's no right way protesting is protesting. So everybody has a right to protest their own way that they want. Um, I just, you know, know personally, I guess it's like, I'm definitely one that leans, you know, against the whole, the violent side of things. You know, it's like a, when I was younger, it's like you're surrounded by nothing but violence and getting in fist fights and getting in trouble. And it's kind of like, now as I get older, I'm like, there just needs to be some peaceful stuff like that, you know, and, and some people want right. to ruin it for others. Um, but it's interesting to hear that you, uh, you have those regulars in your community that you deal with that you arrest like say once a week yeah. and then the next week you're like what the fuck man like did you not learn last week and they just go in well, for like what people... overnight or two and then like they let them out back on the street and they just do that every single week yeah according to what it is i mean sometimes they'll get prison time but a lot of people i mean they you know i've never tried to take it too personal you know like it it's a job it's a passion um but I don't take it too personal. And there's, there's people we deal with where we'll pull them over and we'll search a car and they don't have anything on them. And they're like, nah, I learned last time. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, this is a game. It's a business. You know, some days I win, some days you win. It's nothing <laughs> personal against you. It's not that I don't like you. Mm -hmm. It's just dealing drugs is your job and catching you is my job. Some days I win, some days you win. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, going back to the protest, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing because some people are, you know, they, they legitimately want to get out there and they want their voice heard. And we were all, I feel like I can only speak for our department, but we were always pretty sympathetic to that. Um, you know, we, we didn't do a whole lot of the tear gassing. We didn't do a lot of that. We would block roads so they could do what they wanted to do. Yeah, that's cool. And we make sure, you know, just close it off so that they could go where they wanted to. Um, we changed a tire for a lady, not to give an attaboy, but, remember our squad came by and the lady had a flat tire. She had parked up. She was one of the protesters and we changed her tire for her. And she was like, I, I flagged down like eight people that were protesting with me and none of them stopped. Jeez. And I think it's weird that the cops stopped, you mm -hmm. know? And I was like, again, it ain't personal. You know, we're here to do that, to, to 
to help. Um, it ain't always going to be the right answer. It ain't always going to be the answer that you want to hear, but we're here to help. Yeah. Um, but there's so much misinformation. There's so much, I remember. <laughs> so I face a lot of things with humor, you know, that like, that's my coping mechanism for bad things is humor. And, uh, one of them. So during the middle of the protest, a tornado struck Orlando. And <laughs> during the protest, I was a bike officer. So I'm on a bicycle. And I remember we had these special weather alert tones on our radio. So if there's a weather alert, it makes a different tone. And we very rarely hear it, but it made that tone. And they're like, yeah, our dispatcher was like, yeah, there's a tornado that's, you know, half a mile southwest of this intersection. And I remember thinking, like, how could she possibly know that there's a tornado half a mile southwest of us? And like, I couldn't even finish the thought and we see the tornado and we're like, Oh crap. So we like take off on our bikes riding one way. And then the tornado like changes direction. So we have to skirt back the other way. And then we ride and like skid into a parking garage. And it's the same. I'm sure Dan can relate like the military. Anytime you like skirt death for some weird reason, it's hilarious. Yep. <laughs> and everyone's like laughing hysterically and you don't think about it until weeks or maybe months later. And you're like, Oh man, that could have sucked. But at the time <laughs> you're just laughing hysterically and people are like, Oh, you were so scared. Like you see, you almost fall off your bike and you know, all these things. <laughs> but the next day there were Instagram and Facebook posts about like OPD making a tornado to chase protesters away. And I'm like, <laughs> wait, who what believes this kind of stuff? Wait, that was a real article that people were saying that fucking Orlando. It wasn't Police an article, Department? but it was like Facebook and Instagram posts. So like, again, I'm not making fun of them. I'm not trying to like, <laughs> but I, I, we're reading it and just like, are you serious right now? Like, do you really think we have a tornado making machine to chase protesters? Hashtag so, tornado PD. Right. Most trending. So I'm sure that's a, <laughs> a small group that actually believes that, but it's just weird that that gets publicity at all so that's interesting yeah we got a tornado making machine so if you don't obey us we're gonna release <laughs> havoc on your town hey man you can make a lot of things happen with some fans mm -hmm. that's yeah real. you, you just need some big ass fans, fans. <laughs> that's funny what, what do you think uh so you work nights correct john yeah i work 3 p.m to 3 a.m most nights okay gotcha so you you kind of deal with a lot of the I guess, troublesome kind of people then around like what's kind of like your usual like night. Is it kind of working with, you know, drug addicts, parolees? Like what's, is it kind of a mixture? Um, so I'm on a kind of a specialized team right now. So I don't, I don't do normal patrol. Um, so like if you call 911, I'm not, I'm not coming to that necessarily. If it's, if it's a violent crime that requires a lot of officers, I'll go, mm -hmm. but all of our stuff is pretty much proactive. Okay. Um, so we, we try to do proactive drug arrest, um, search warrants, just take the kind of the worst of the worst off the streets. Um, and a lot of that stuff, you know, people say drugs are a victimless crime. I, I believe it to a point, mm -hmm. you know, like weed, I get it. You know, no one's going to get high on weed and do too much crazy. Um, I may argue with mushrooms too. I don't think too many people are going to be killing people on mushrooms. Correct. Yeah. Like shrooms, all that stuff, but bath salts, K2, 
you get on that, that's when they start chewing people's faces off or um, robbing. And, and a lot of the violent crime happens as a result of drug crime. Yeah. Um, so competing drug dealers in areas and um, there's a lot of robberies. So people say, you know, he's got all the drugs and money. I'm going to go take it from him. And then it just goes back and forth after that. So mm-hmm. we just try to alleviate a lot of that to clean up the area. Mm-hmm. Um have you had any kind of like sketchy Sometimes moments? Sometimes it seems like I was in battle, but what's that? Have you had any kind of like sketchy moments of like uh, like kind of random patrols, like at night, kind of dealing with some of these people? Oh yeah, every single day. Uh, <laughs> I think I told you when I, when I was down here, like you know, a lot of departments will, um, like I think. I think my dad went through 42 years in law enforcement. I think he said he pulled his gun on somebody like five or six times mm. in that, that time period. Maybe he probably, which my dad could do. I don't want to get into it too much, <laughs> but he probably was allowed to do a lot more than I was uh, back in the day, but that's not bad I mean, though we're, for 42 years. We're yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're pulling out that gun almost nightly on somebody wow. you know just really for whatever it is um i i thank god i haven't haven't had shooting by here yet but um yeah i mean it's it's a it's like the wild west after the sun goes down and some and, it, and i mean that's all across america every police department mm-hmm. um especially your major cities it's, it's amazing what goes on every night that the that most people just don't hear about or know about so i uh, have you because you talked about it a little bit like how how much uh i guess have you had to deal with somebody like on basalt because i'm sure you've heard these stories of people eating other people's faces off and then i've heard one of a guy attacking a woman in her house and then jumping through the glass like a patio or whatever and then still fighting like three police officers with him like bloodied from all the glass shards in him and stuff like that and he's still fighting off three people is it really like that bad or is that kind of embellishment by the media oh no it's not embellished at all um we had the only one that i've ever had so have you ever heard of excited delirium yeah so that's usually like a precursor of death it's like the last little bit of adrenaline that you have in your body and it's all coming out Mm -hmm. before you die Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot of like in custody deaths from that, um, because people were in excited delirium and cops weren't aware of it, didn't know how to treat it on the foreign and the people who died in custody. Um, we've dealt with that a couple of times. I have one story from, I was a brand new officer. I was in building. I was first. So when you go in, you do your Academy, which is five months you do, or for us, then you do orientation, which is about a month and a half. And then you go into field training and there's four phases of field training. Each phase is 15 working days. So they're about a month each. Um, so I was brand new first phase FTO and we get a call. It came out as like a trespasser at a bank, you know, dude, they told him to leave. He wouldn't leave. Um, so then it gets an emergency channel. Emergency channel means everybody in the area is coming to it. It's something serious, something violent. Um, so we get it. And the guy was on bath salts and he was a little guy. I mean, like five, five, 140 pounds. He had bit somebody. So the call read to us. They were like, he bit 
a bank teller. What the fuck? And I'm like, okay, he bit him. Like, I, I'm thinking like, you know, he bit him and it's not that serious. The dude had taken a chunk out of the guy's thigh and like caused almost a femoral bleed. Jeez. And the guy had to go to the hospital, like trauma alert. So we get there and it's like six of us wrestling this guy and he will like, it's doing all we can. And I'm not, I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I'm not a small guy either. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to handle this guy and I just can't, you know, like everything I'm doing with his arms is not working. And the fire department finally gets there and like sedates him and gets him under control. But yeah, man, I mean, it, it's not, I wouldn't say that part of it is not embellished at all. It, it's amazing what people's body can do when they get on some bad drugs. Um, I just like can't what, think of like what the, that will do, like the jaw strength to like bite down on like a, a muscle part of your body and rip that much out. Like it's a, that's a lot of force. Right. So I, I think I remember yeah. reading the article of like what bath salts do to you, but it, it like over excites your adrenal gland to where it basically pumps your body full of every last little bit of adrenaline you have. And so you're, you're capable of doing incredible things three times as damage basically <laughs> right <laughs> like we had that's another insane. kid we had another kid not that long ago i think it was halloween night he comes up to us and he walks by and like as a cop you you develop this just like kind of sixth sense to know when someone's going to be trouble you'll see them and you're like i'm talking about a downtown crowd of thirty thousand people you'll see this person and you're like oh yeah i'm going to deal with him later tonight and <laughs> Sure enough, like two hours later, the kid comes up to us and he just starts stripping out of his clothes and he's like growling at us and just just taking his clothes off. So we're kind of letting it go at first. Like, let's just see. You know, it's Halloween night. We got a lot going on. Let's just see what he does. So then he charges somebody. So we grab him up. And me and my partner, uh, we're like holding him down on the ground. So then he starts like hitting his head on the ground. Like he's trying to like bash his head into the pavement. So I pick him up and he was super light. He was a little guy, but I pick him up and I'm like, who else has him? Because his body's so stiff. I thought somebody had the other side of him and they didn't. So I'm just holding him and he had like planked out to where his body is like a two by four, just completely <laughs> stiff. And then he's just growling at me while I'm holding him in the air and like, I don't know how someone's body can get that stiff and that rigid and still like growl and fight at us. But he was just on some bad drugs. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. Really. Bro, bro. Haven't you, you heard of Viagra? See it. What? <laughs> I said, haven't you heard of Viagra? <laughs> I guess it was whole body. Viagra, <laughs> that's that's crazy. But yeah. Dude, the stories, man. I mean, it, that, that could be a podcast in itself of just getting like cops on and yeah. telling funny stories from the night. I mean, th there's a reason that shows like live PD and cops and all that are mm -hmm. so successful because it's just, I mean, it's, it's humor every single night. And there's some bad sprinkled in, there's some sad sprinkled in, but like most of the night is just, it's just funny, you know, like what you deal with. So. So it like never gets old then. Cause I imagine it's like you said, we could turn this whole episode into talking about your experiences of being a cop. But I mean, obviously that's a, a big important thing. Cause you know, we like to talk about people's post transition where they got into. So it's interesting to hear more on the inside 
to where we don't hear that every day, you know, from police officers, the media doesn't yeah. really shed too much light on that. Bo asked me this, I think in the first podcast and, uh, there's definitely like, um, a lot of humor and stuff, but it, for cops, what is one thing as a police officer that no matter how many shows you watch, no matter how many things you think you've heard, you just, you'll never be prepared for. And I think what I said was like, how comfortable you need to be shitting in front of other people in the army. But like, <laughs> is there, <laughs> is there like something like that? Something that just, you'll never hear about it in a show. You'll never read about it in a, in a news clip or something like that. That's just like cops have to deal with this and no, nobody wants to talk about it. Um, I mean, if I have to think right off hand, like, the amount of places that cockroaches are <laughs> like I've never, and I, I know that's a weird statement that people probably aren't going to get, but I've searched cars. So most of my night is going through cars. So we'll pull over a car. We'll get some kind of probable cause to enter the car and search it. And like, I'm looking under the seat and I see this little black cube and I'm like, what, what is this? And I look at it and it's a cockroach trap. And then you get to digging through the car and there's cockroaches in the car, which what is just a foreign concept to me, but just the, and, and I'm not making fun of anybody. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to put down anybody, but just the, like, I've never seen so many cockroaches then in just weird places and just so much dirtiness or rats or anything else. Like, yeah, I, I, nothing really prepared me for that. Like I knew I was going to see blood. I knew I was going to, um, you know, I was, knew I was going to see beat up people. I knew I was going to see all this, but yeah, just the the filth that some yeah. people can live in and be okay with it. Yeah, it, that's nothing another, prepared me for that. That's another thing because I imagine you guys deal with like a lot of like fights outside of bars, like the, the you know the usual shit. You deal with a crackhead here too. Um, yeah, you know, fucking noise complaints, and I imagine a lot of those calls are probably pretty boring uh, for the most part. But from oh, talking yeah. to you when I was down in Florida, it seems like it, it's it's interesting because you never know what you're you're going to get each night that you're working. Yeah, and that's what I love about the job. I mean, you know, I've had jobs, even the, like the Bass Pro job, where I would come in. I knew what I was going to be doing mm -hmm. the whole shift. I knew how the shift was going to end. Um, I knew I was going to start. I knew everything about it in between, and. I can understand how that's comfortable to some, but it was just boring. It was endless boredom. I love my job. There's days I don't want to go in. There's mm -hmm. days that I would much rather take off and sleep, but it is fun knowing that like, okay, I'm starting a 12 hour shift and I have no idea if this is going to turn into a 16 hour shift or a 17 hour shift. I have no idea. Like if I'm going to have to go home and change my uniform because it's dirty or wet or covered mm -hmm. in blood or, you know, like every single day is a completely new, different experience. Um, so yeah, I absolutely love that. Um, and then there's days that you, you really do feel like you make a difference. Uh, mm -hmm. I would say nine out of 10 of the days, you feel like you're making zero difference, but <laughs> you'll, you'll get those one days where you really help somebody and you're like, man, you know, like if I wouldn't have been here when I was here, this could have gotten way worse mm -hmm. or this could have gone really bad. 
So those, you know, those are rewarding days. So, you know what I think is pretty entertaining. I I told uh, Dan about the other day when I was down there in Florida visiting you and you had that funny joke. And I think that for listeners, I think it'll be funny if they do it on their own. But if you type in your birthday and then Florida man in Google, (laughs) you will always find an article (laughs) about some crazy fucking Florida man that happened like a case on your birthday. (laughs) Like mine like, was man arrested with 12 cans of fart spray. Like you can't make that up. Like how, how do you even make that mine up? Mine wasn't that bad. That. Mine was like Florida man hides underwater for like 20 minutes hiding from the cops. Here we'll, And we'll, we'll Dan's do doing it now. I was going to say, Dan's we'll do it. We'll do it live. Or I guess it's not live, but uh, <laughs> you know, we'll do it you for the listeners. So Florida man, my birthday, which I'm not going to say what it is. Um, Let's see. Oh my! Oh. <laughs> a lot. Of, I only got a portion of it. I have to click the article to read oh, the, rest a of long the headline. <laughs> Florida man removes women woman's kidney during back surgery because he thought it was a tumor. <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> you get the most random things. I swear. <laughs> yeah, all the rumors about Florida people are completely true, even when they. Uh, Funny side point. Remember when the guy stole Nancy Pelosi's podium from the Capitol riot? Yeah. yeah. And they were like, Florida gets a pass on this one. And then they arrested that guy at his home in Florida. Oh, and they were like, my. okay, psych. I guess Florida doesn't get a pass. That was oh, still, shit. A, still a Florida man <laughs> story. Uh, have you ever, uh, I'm kind of curious now, have you ever been on a case where there's been an alligator? several of them really yeah so there's certain agencies around here mainly the sheriff's departments um that will uh like it's part of their academy is to learn how to catch alligators Mm. um my department doesn't do that it's not part of our training but yeah i've had several calls where and they'll show up in the most random places like industrial parks where there's not water for miles and they'll call us and they're like, Hey, I'm at this car dealership and there's an alligator what the walking hell? around, you know, under the Cadillac. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we've had those calls. Usually we'll try and get it to FWC. Um, but one of my buddies had a, he randomly had a, a lasso or lariat in the back of his patrol car. Mm-hmm. And we were able to lasso the alligator and like walk it to the nearest pond. Um, I've had bear calls. I've chased a bear out of a Starbucks dumpster before what? in the middle in of the city limits of Orlando. That's crazy. Um, yeah, there, there's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> it's just, it's just weird that you would never know is going on. I, I think I'm starting to to like Florida a little more just for entertainment value. <laughs> like I think Dan and I need to come down and visit it's you like and TV just go state. out like a late night binger, like while oh, yeah, you're while you're do. working and just follow you around and see what we can find. <laughs> Florida seems like I the perfect that, place man. that every like college student needs to find an internship or something mm-hmm. in Florida just so that they can spend a summer <laughs> or a semester and experience it. Cause I have a feeling I would amass so many stories to be like, oh man, when I was in Florida this summer, guess what happened? And just have yeah. infinite number, number of stories to tell people. Uh, I was tell, I think I told Bo about it. We get a call one day and me and my buddy. So you can on our computer dispatch system, you can see the calls that are holding. 
and me and my buddy are we're a good ways away from this call like on a completely opposite side of the town but it's on that same like talk group they were on mm-hmm. and the call came out as a suspicious person it was a uh female breastfeeding a gopher turtle and i could not clear and get to that call fast enough like i was like send me that call right now i need to see this so we shit. go there. oh and she's and she's in a starbucks which makes it even better so it was a female breastfeeding a gopher turtle in a starbucks and we get there and then she wanted to fight us over the gopher turtle so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't even know how you make those stories up, but that that's my day-to-day and stuff first, like that. First of all, what does a gopher turtle look like, and how is it not, like, biting <laughs> off her nipple? Yeah, like, when I think of a turtle, I just think of snapping, like, beak-like turtles. Exactly. Where it fucking hurts when you get bit by them. I'm, I'm looking it up. Yeah. I, I normally don't do I this, mean, but I have all, to they're, know. They're a protected species, so she wound up getting arrested by the Wildlife Commission for a felony because she's not supposed to be in possession of a gopher turtle, especially not in Starbucks. That's crazy. I don't know if that's yeah, pleasurable so. to a female to have your <laughs> breast suckled on by some wild turtle, but that does not sound fucking comfortable to me. Not at all. That is I'm gonna insane. Guess, no. <laughs> hey, if you're on bath salts, you but never know anything can be comfortable. Yeah, I guess. There's so many stories. I mean, th- these are the ones that I can talk about. Like, imagine the ones that I can't put on air, you know, like it's just. It, it's amazing what you'll see and what you'll. Oh, because you're you're with. under contract, aren't you? Um, you can't I mean, a lot. I haven't signed like a non-disclosure or anything, but there's there's things that I'm just not allowed to talk about. So yeah. any act of investigation, any anything like that, or anything that would bring embarrassment upon the agency or something yeah. like that. But yeah, that makes sense. I think yeah, there's def- there's a, a good... lot of stories that yeah, just crazy. So. That's in, that's insane. So where do you, um, where is uh, your police, you know, kind of career going? Like, do you plan on being in it for a while? Do you plan on maybe going to SWAT? Like, where do you kind of see yourself going with it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I got 15 years so I could retire from here mm-hmm. and I, I plan on sticking it out. Um, that's kind of the great thing about law enforcement is it's like a hundred little jobs inside one job. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you get bored of one thing, you can move to the next, um, something I, uh, I tried out for SWAT last year. I didn't make it, um, still undecided whether I'm going to try it again this year or not. Um, uh, really would love to do canine. Mm-hmm. So like just working with a dog, um, there's something, uh, Dan, y'all had dogs with y'all in deployments, right? Yep. Yeah. Like there is there's something magical about working with a creature that unconditionally loves you and does what you want it to do at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like you could work with a dog for your entire career and only unlock 20% of that dog potential of what it can do. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely, I've, I've been trying to lay the tracks for that. Um, decoying and working with our canine officers and um, I would absolutely love to do that mm-hmm. um, I'm going on temporary assignment to our to be a detective coming up here in the summer just to see if I like that um, but yeah I, I don't know man I kind of take it day to day I'm taking the sergeant's exam so we'll see what that's like uh, which feels like I'm studying for a 
doctorate degree while I'm studying through all these policies. But uh, yeah, I, if, if I had to limit it down to one, it would probably be that canine spot just because working with dogs, man, just seems like an awesome passion. Yeah. Well, um, I want to uh, kind of wrap on this last subject with you, John, if there's um, I think the important thing that we want to do uh, with this podcast is obviously help other veterans with, you know, transition, finding their purpose, finding what career paths that they want to be, you know, really invested into. Maybe some of them don't even know what that career path looks like, you know, and from everyone's experience, it's always different. You know, I kind of know what Dan's is. I know a little bit about yours so far from this podcast, but if you were going to kind of shed some light for other veterans that may be struggling, you know, they feel like they've lost their purpose, you know, what would be the best kind of approach like step-by-step step that you'd recommend? Um, to be honest, man, I've, I've thought about this a lot. Like, um, and it almost sounds rude. I don't know how to get it across to people, but it's like, if you're out of the military, let it go. Mm-hmm. Find something else. Um, you know, take those skills that you learn, take that, that drive that you've learned, um, take that camaraderie, that ability to work with other people that you've learned um, and, and put it into something else because it it's almost kind of sad how many veterans, especially guys I served with that, you know, they did something for for five to seven years of their life and they've been out for 15 years mm-hmm. and they're still living off of that. Yeah. Um, and they're expecting the same respect they got out of the military they're expecting the same um success that they got out of the military in something else and they're not finding it and you know i mean like i said not to pat myself on the back but like i had to humble myself because i i left the army as a platoon sergeant i had like 40 guys that i was in charge of i had an amazing amount of responsibility that i can't even fathom now and I, I've looked back at like 23 and 24 year old me and I'm like, how did I deal with all that? You know, like, yeah. Um, but I went from that to being a recruit at a police department again. I went back to being the new guy. Um, and, and I wish more people would look at that as being like, okay, I'm gonna have to be the new guy somewhere again. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's my biggest advice. Cause I, I think too many people get lost in that you know, hanging on to what they were in the military and trying to translate that into what they're going to be next. Yeah. It ain't always going to work out that way. You got to make your own path. I was, I was just talking to another veteran uh, a few days ago and we were going over exactly that is I was telling him, you know, he was looking for a position and uh, unfortunately he was, he was kind of in the same shoes I was in. He was like, you know, I pushed off all of my military experience. Didn't, look at it at all, which I think is the wrong approach. I think you need to take your military experience and turn that into your own personal potential for how far you can go within your new position. Mm -hmm. But you need to realize that a lot of people don't see your military experience as directly applicable to really any job in the civilian workforce for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there might be a few here and there that yes, there's like a, you know, uh, veteran preferred workplaces and things like that, that'll, that'll definitely give better opportunities to veterans. But for the most part, you, you have to realize that you are going to start at the bottom again, but you don't necessarily want to completely push off all of your military experience because you want to use that 
user experience to accelerate beyond your peers to show that you are a better candidate or a better worker or a better police officer than everybody else and lean on that experience to really show that and and bring it to the forefront. And that's basically what I was telling him. And I I think that's like you're you're spot on. What you're saying is like you got to. It's not that you push it all off and don't think about it, but it's you need to realize that you can't hold on to that experience and expect the same level of respect and responsibility that you had in the military coming straight into the civilian workforce. You still have to earn it. Yep. That's yeah. a whole different group of people. It's a whole different job. And like you said, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I, I've progressed pretty far in the police world. Um, I've only been a sworn officer for going on five years. I'm already a field trainer. I'm already on a specialized unit, already helping out our firearms range. Um, it, it's not to like say, like, oh, I'm cool. It's just, I think I've, I've transitioned that I've started as a rookie, but I proved myself and I've, I've shown people, hey, I'm not, I'm not a 23 year old straight out of college doing this job. Like I've got other experiences. I'm willing to humble myself to be a rookie if you need me to be, but I, I have more to bring to the table if you'll see it. Yep. And I think I've done a pretty good job of showing that. And I, and I wish more people would do that because a lot of people, they leave the military and they, they may have been high ranking. They may have had these, these positions and they're expecting to go into their next chapter of life with that same respect. And it just don't work that way. Well, that, um, that's kind of like what I see so, is, is, yeah. is, is almost, you know, when you leave and I think you, you know, expect to carry the same, kind of leadership roles and you expect that you're going to get the same treatment as when you're going to be, you know, really let down. And I think that even if you are stepping into the civilian, you know, workforce industry, um, or just that lifestyle, I would say just getting your foot in the door and getting hired, even if you have to start from square one is a huge step forward because at least you're not stuck at home and you're sitting there dwelling on, you know, how am I going to make money? How am I going to support my family and myself? I think that just by putting your, foot in the door, getting out there, you know, sending in resumes, you know, going and knocking on doors and saying like, look, I don't have much experience with this. You know, maybe I am infantry, but I'm a damn hard worker and I've moved my way up in the ranks of the military. I know that I can do it in the civilian workforce. I think if everyone has yeah. kind of that mentality, like, Hey, fuck it. I got to start over. I got to start over. But if I could conquer it in the military, I can fucking do it here. Well, and I think that's what translates a lot from the infantry and special operations field is, you know, like we don't have a specific skill set that translates to the civilian workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no civilian job that's clearing houses and blowing stuff up and setting charges and how well you can shoot, you know, but it's that ability to adapt to everything. Mm-hmm. Um and and excel and everything because i remember being as a platoon sergeant you know i had to make sure that my guys knew how to shoot had all their equipment squared away but i also had to be able to to talk to villagers and i had to be able to coordinate with interpreters and you know like you had to develop people skills you had to develop all these other things that were outside of the scope of your job yeah. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of people get lost in, you know, while well, I was infantry, I don't know how that translates. Well, infantry is almost one of those, like, you got to be a jack of all trades type of deal. You got to know how to do one thing 
plus a hundred other things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where people can really market that. You do have to humble yourself a little bit to, to get to those spots. Um, And I think if you're okay with being the new guy for a little bit, you're going to excel a lot quicker than your peers. You just got to humble yourself and not, not think I'm going to go into this with the same level of respect that I left my last place from, because Mm -hmm. most people don't know, they don't know what the military entails. They don't know what you did, nor do they care, you know? So, yeah. uh, Yeah. It's a, it's a weird transition, but that's what I wish a lot more people would see. Uh, I see that with a lot of my friends that I got out with, you know, they're, they got out 15 years ago, which is hard to believe that it's, it's been that long, but you know, time starts flying and then you see them. Some of them have become really successful and then other ones are, they're just, they're still the same old guy that was, that you served with mm-hmm. and they're holding like their cashier family dollar. And you're like, come on, man, like you did so much better in the service. Like, why are you doing this now? So yeah, just a weird transition. I definitely think, you know, uh, that goes back to kind of why we're doing the book while we're doing the podcast is like creating more role models and showing people that it doesn't matter really how much time you spent in service, how much, uh, you know, how, how high your rank has gone. Like everybody has struggled in some regard getting out and transitioning into the workforce and just sharing all these stories of like how people have been successful transitioning, um, just gives more people kind of, uh, pathways to success outside of the military. It just gives them more opportunities to see other people, you know, who have made it work and made it happen. Um, and like Bo said, you know, not not sit at home and and dwell on your, you know, your uh, your failures and and uh, you know all the other things like that are just going to be bring back bad memories or mm-hmm. or you know what I, you know just not make you successful. Just giving yourself a positive mindset and and creating a purpose for yourself again. Yeah, I think if if you start with a positive mindset, as hard as that may be, because obviously I have no experience of, you know, fighting in a war, being overseas or being in the military for that. But I can just imagine kind of the the darkness that you can surround yourself with after that. And it's up to you to want to see that light, you know, in in a cheesy cliche way of saying it. I just think that we all need to hold ourselves accountable. We need to have that backbone, that support, you know, that right brotherhood and sisterhood and community to help guide us but initially you could be getting phone calls every second of the day until you go to bed but it's personally up to you to actually follow through with what you want to do and be like you know what i'm done fucking living this way and um i've seen some shit but i want to get my you know fucking put my boots back on and uh and get out there and, and be somebody and um i appreciate you sharing your story John for taking the time tonight to hop on with Dan and I, and obviously I know you and Dan go back and, you know, I've had a lot of fun personal experiences and both served in the army. And, uh, I can't thank you enough for being part of this book and and again, wanting to hop on this podcast and and share your story. No, man, I'm excited. And I gotta say, dude, like, I mean, me and Dan had that bond from the military and I gotta say, Bo, when you came down, like, I, I felt like, well, I saw you in the tattoo shop because he met me at the tattoo shop to mm-hmm. try and get some pictures there. And it it was like I had like there was no first meeting. I just felt like I knew you already. Yeah. So like you just fit in with that. And it was it was an awesome experience, man. I enjoyed having you. I love it. And and thanks again for having me. And 
Uh, hopefully, Dan, I can make it down there again and and uh, and come visit you again soon. Oh yeah, we got to we got to see you. You're welcome anytime. We got to see a rocket go to space. I've been saying it every time I'm coming oh, down there it? to watch a rocket go to space. <laughs> I got three kayaks. There's three of us. We're going out Mosquito Lagoon, and we're gonna be right up under that rocket as yes. it takes off. So. Oh yeah, that sounds awesome. Well, I'll definitely get photos and. <laughs> John, I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your night, and thanks again for being a part of it. All right, man. Y'all too. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, brother. Take care.